Hello, I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of Out the Gate, the podcast I started to learn more about San Francisco Bay, specifically sailing and adventure on the bay. One of the things that I love about living in the Bay Area is regularly seeing whales. They're such amazing, majestic creatures, and I just find it pretty mind-blowing still that they're often hanging out probably a mile or less from where I live. And it just never gets old to me being out on the bay or elsewhere on the water and seeing whales, porpoises, seals, sea lions. Today, we're going whale watching with Allison Payne, a.k.a. Whale Girl. I first became aware of Whale Girl on Instagram, where I saw her amazing photographs of breaching whales or whale tails. But what really caught my interest were the lengthy descriptions under the pictures that explained complex behaviors or shared fascinating tidbits of info about whale brains or I just saw one about their taste buds. Did you know whales probably don't taste sweet and sour, but they can taste salty things? Which I think is pretty funny because when you think about it, probably everything they eat is salty since it's been marinating in the sea. But anyway, I recently joined Allison for a whale watching tour and we sat down afterwards to talk about what we'd seen and more. Enjoy. My name is Allison, and so I'm a naturalist on San Francisco Whale Tours boat Kitty Cat. Um, we take people out into the Gulf of the Farallons looking for whales. And my background's in animal cognition and animal behavior. So I studied the squirrels at UC Berkeley and uh, then moved on to other mammals like Hector's dolphins, bottlenose dolphins. Uh, I studied ancient whale fossils and then came here and started studying the humpback whales, harbor porpoises, gray whales, and bottlenose dolphins in San Francisco Bay and the adjacent waters. So I'm a master's student with San Francisco State's Estuary and Ocean Science Center, and I'm a researcher at the Marine Mammal Center. Fantastic. And we're sitting here aboard Kitty Cat. We just went out and saw a whale. The afternoon <laughs> tour <did>. here <laughs> was fantastic. Thanks to Captain Joe taking us out the gate and to the channel. And tell us a little about what we saw out there. Yeah, so we were looking at Akula, who is a humpback whale that has been sighted in this area for the last 10 years. So the first time we saw Akula was in 2009. And Akula has been sighted in Monterey Bay and in the Gulf of the Farallons uh, multiple times since then. We've seen Akula inside San Francisco Bay, way out by the Farallons. So she, she gets around. She's made an appearance in a lot of places around here. And we saw Akula right out in the shipping channel, actually between the red and green buoys. Exactly. Um, which isn't the place you necessarily want to see whales. Right. So the shipping lane out here is the second busiest on the West Coast. So the only one that's busier is Long Beach down in Southern California. It is a really dangerous spot for the whales out here. And we see a lot of ship strikes. And if you're local, you probably have seen some of them on the news, especially this past season. There was an unusual mortality event with the gray whales, and lots more of them were washing ashore. But out of the 14 that washed ashore, seven of those were ship strikes. 
Wow, so half of them ship strikes. How did you go from squirrels <laughs> to whales? They're both mammals. Good question. Different. Good question. So I grew up close to the ocean and always really loved dolphins and whales. But then as I went to college, I, I studied cognitive science. So my interest is really in brains and behavior. And I thought animals were more interesting than humans. So I was, took an animal cognition class at Berkeley. And the professor who taught that class had a lab that studied all the squirrels on campus. So I kind of got my first taste of field research and what it's like to kind of just be out in the field and just have problems that crop up and you just have to build a tool to solve them or you have questions and you just have to think creatively to figure out ways that you can answer your questions. And I really loved that about being out in the field. And so after a couple years with the squirrels, I was getting ready to graduate and was just thinking, what animal do I really want to study for the rest of my life? Like, this is great, but if I could do this anywhere, what would I pick? And the answer was whales, just to be out on the water. And um, their brains are so interesting. They're so similar to ours in so many ways and so radically different in so many ways. I find them super interesting. Field research is a little different. The field is a little different <laughs> yeah. for whales. So you're out on the water pretty much every day, at least in the summer when you're doing these whale tours. Yep. In the field season, we are out as much as possible. Um, the whole crew helps me out. So we've got surveys uh, that we do every single time we see whales. So even if I'm not on board, they still give me the information. <laughs> what kind of information are you gathering? So we want to know, um, first of all, if we can identify the individual either based on the pattern on the underside of its tail, or sometimes like a kula, they have a unique dorsal fin that we can use to identify them. Other than that, we also want to know where the whale is. It's really important that we found it in the shipping lane. We also want to know what other types of animals were around, if there were birds, if there were porpoises, if there were inboard or outboard motors, container ships passing by. Uh, we want to know if there were anchovies on the fish finder, you know, just stuff like that. So we can kind of get a complete picture. And then we also record any behaviors that the whale's doing. So if it's tail slapping or breaching or feeding, uh, then we want to know. Who funds the research and, and who is it for? I'm a researcher for the Marine Mammal Center, and I'm part of their new cetacean field research team. We were called Golden Gate Cetacean Research, but... We have now been absorbed by the Marine Mammal Center, which is super exciting. Just happened at the beginning of the summer. Wow, that's very cool. The Marine Mammal Center, which is up by Rodeo Beach in yes, the Marine Headlands. Over in Sausalito. It's the largest marine mammal hospital in the world. So they've got lots of seals and sea lions that you can visit over there. See the fish milkshakes that they make for them. We have a different job. We're not looking at the seals and sea lions. We're out looking for whales, mostly humpbacks, grays, and then the porpoises and dolphins as well. And even on occasion, uh, killer whales or orca whales. Every once in a while, yeah. Mostly out closer to the Farallons. And you were telling me, I didn't realize this, that they actually hunt and eat great white sharks. They do. So different populations of orcas will have different diets that they prefer. The famous ones are the salmon eaters, the southern resident killer whales. But... We've got a couple populations that kind of pass by us, and the population out at the Farallons likes to eat great white sharks, and they specifically like the liver of the great whites because 
Sharks have extremely fatty livers. It's a major part of how the shark stays buoyant. So in some types of sharks, their liver can be up to a third of their body weight. Wow. So it's a pretty hearty meal for those orcas. And you said when the orcas show up? The sharks disappear. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, was, there was one story about shark researchers who documented about 80 sharks in the area of the Farallon Islands. And some orcas showed up. The next day, all the sharks were gone. The sharks do not mess around when there are orcas present. So people might be afraid of sharks, but the sharks are afraid of the orcas. That's how you know that the orcas are the true apex predator. (laughs) (laughs) Your name is Allison Payne, but as the captain said here on the boat, on the street here in San Francisco, you're known as... Whale Girl. Whale Girl. (laughs) How did you get the name Whale Girl? Actually, my mom started calling me Whale Girl first, and then it just kind of stuck around here on the boat. We all give each other nicknames, call each other all kinds of stuff, and then the guys at the pier started calling it to me so it just kind of grew from there and my website is called whale girl as well whalegirl.org right yes i visited the site and there are some amazing photos that you've taken there of whales and i saw you snapping pictures today so you use this time on the water to for research and to get photos do you have a love of photography or is that in just in service of the research i um did not know anything about photography before I started here at San Francisco Whale Tours um, doing this research. So I just started off as a naturalist on board here and uh, was connected with, at the time, uh, Golden Gate Cetacean Research. And they very generously lent me a camera. And so I started getting ID shots uh, of these humpback whales, which is, as you know, pretty important because we're the only boat out there. We're the only whale watching tour typically that's going out every day. And a lot of times there's there's just no one else there. And so this is information that nobody else out there is getting. It feels really special to be able to collect that and uh, bring that back. I learned how to do it just to get the ID shots, but I've been doing it for about two and a half years now. And I, I'm trying to get breaches and stuff like that. All the you know, the cool lighting, the cool angle keeps it interesting. But my main goal is just to identify the whale. <laughs> well, you've got some great shots on there. Thank as you. As well as just IDing. <laughs> Tell me about some of the more exciting sightings that you've had. Yeah. So everyone is so different. You never know what will happen. And for me, that's the real exciting thing is not knowing when or where you'll find them and just having to constantly be on alert. I remember once out at the Farallons, we had about 50 humpbacks all around us, and it was kind of a rare day at the Farallons where it was completely flat, and the sun was out, and there was no wind, and so Mm. every single time one of the humpbacks spouted, you could see a rainbow in their spout, so it was kind of like Las Vegas light show. (laughs) What's it like out at the Farallons? It's amazing. It's kind of like Jurassic Park, but Bay Area edition. They are just these steep rocky cliffs it extends really quite high and as you approach a lot of times you're approaching through the fog and they kind of just appear out of the mist and there's birds swirling around and um, sea lions just jumping out you can sometimes see the bottom as you get closer and it gets shallower I think the most striking thing about the Farallons is just how noisy it is I think that's something that 
we forget about in nature. We kind of think about nature as being like quiet or contemplative, but it's not, <laughs> especially out there. It's just deafening sounds of seabirds and sea lions and the wind and the waves. And it's really intense. Have you ever been in the water with whales? Not with whales. I accidentally was in the water once with dolphins when I was studying them in Spain, but that's because we had, it was Spain, so we had a siesta and I would usually go swimming on my siesta and um, our office was right on the harbor. So I was just swimming outside the office and a bunch of dolphins came right in. And so I just, I had to jump out and get the camera <laughs> to hopefully identify some of them, but I never swam with whales. Definitely not here. And you said you grew up near the water, but did you spend time on the water when you were younger, growing up? A little bit, yeah. So I grew up in Dana Point. A few of my early memories are from in fourth and fifth grade in Dana Point, they have you go on the tall ship that's down there in the harbor. We spend a night on the ship. Uh, that was really fun for me. I really enjoyed that. Which and tall ship is that? It's the Pilgrim, the Brig Pilgrim. Then in fifth grade, they send you off to Catalina on an overnight trip. So I remember loving that as well, uh, just seeing dolphins and going snorkeling and all of that. My sister is an accomplished sailor. She is, she just graduated from Cal Poly, but she raced on their sailing team there. And so she grew up as a sea scout. And most of my time out on the water, she was skippering and she was taking me out and I was just following her orders. So. That's a good combination. <laughs> sailor and whale researcher you can guys can go out team up exactly yeah hopefully uh one day we'll cite pain and pain on some research papers <laughs> <laughs> well being out on the water here in northern california is a little different it's really different <laughs> tell me about being out on the san francisco bay every day it's so exciting because it's never the same uh, not even day to day but in, in between 20 minutes it changes so much so it's really thrilling to go out and come back and do it all again, sometimes three times a day. It's a little bit odd to return to Pier 39 after being way out offshore, and then you come <laughs> back to Pier 39, and it's cotton candy and clam chowder everywhere. <laughs> yeah, which brings up an interesting question. You know, we're here docked at Pier 39, and your capacity of the boat is 100 people, and I would imagine a lot of them are tourists who don't really know what they're getting into when they step aboard. <laughs> what does that lead to? Yeah, I, that's probably the trickiest part of the job is trying to make people aware. Um, but as much as you write it down, you know, it's hard to get people to read the email <laughs> before they come on. So you definitely get people heading out into, you know, past the Golden Gate and past Point Bonita who are in a sundress and heels or just their t-shirt or people who are not prepared. All that I can do once they're on board is try to get them prepared as much as I can. And that can be tricky and people react in really different ways. And I really believe that as you get farther offshore, you really start to see who people really are and mm. some of those layers, the niceties disappear. <laughs> We were getting some spray because we had quite a bit of wind on our way out and uh, people were surprised that they were getting wet. Yeah, yeah. You sell ponchos on board here. We sell ponchos, yeah. But I'm sure you also get people who get quite nervous and afraid. Definitely, and yeah. And how do you deal with that? Depends on the person. But when people do have 
like anxiety attacks or things like that, the thing that I like to do is just sit down with them and breathe with them because a lot of times that will also lead to seasickness. That lack of oxygen is mm. really makes people nauseated and just kind of it's a downhill from there. So I try to take them to a spot on the boat that doesn't move as much. So hopefully not the cabin, not usually the sides of the boat or not the back. Mm -hmm. So kind of like in the middle and just try to breathe with them, try to talk to them. Their concerns are valid. I mean, it's an endeavor and it's definitely not something that we take lightly. And we're really concerned with safety on here. So I understand when people are concerned with their own safety. So yeah you take that seriously and that that shows back to the whales from people you must know a lot of the whales out here you you were familiar with the one we saw today you mm -hmm. feel like you kind of build a relationship in <laughs> some way yeah some of them as you get to know them you do start to kind of see that personality and some of them just have amazing stories just from what we can see from their bodies like akula today on her fluke has all these orca tooth rake marks so we know that she's encountered orcas and fought with them before because she has all these parallel lines um, they're all over her tail that's really interesting to us uh, we also get a whale named prop mama out mm -hmm. here and she's quite famous she's got a big propeller scar across her back from a boat that just went straight over the top of her wow. um, but she survived and um, she's also famous because a few years ago in Monterey one of her calves was eaten by orcas mm. and the year after that she was in San Francisco Bay with a new calf um, so we know she's been successful since then uh, but we saw her earlier this year we've seen her every year for the past three years in prop this area. mama prop mama <laughs> yeah what I really enjoyed about the tour is that you were talking nearly the entire time telling us information about the whales. <laughs> One of the most amazing things, I didn't realize how long whales lived, particularly you were talking about whales up north. Yes, the bowhead whales the up bowhead in the Arctic. Whales. Yeah. One bowhead whale was found recently with a harpoon lodged in its blubber, and that type of harpoon had not been used since 1880. So we know that that whale had been swimming with a harpoon in its side for 117 years, um, and most likely it was probably harpooned when it was at least fully mature. That's typically when they would be harpooned. For a bowhead, that would be at least 30 years old. From Just from that, we can tell that they are pretty old. That's amazing. Contributing to the podcast in the background is Bear, <laughs> the whale-watching dog. And that was one of the best aspects of this trip was that there was a dog on the bow scouting for whales. He's a German Shepherd, I believe. Yeah. Beautiful dog, about a year old, I think. But Bear seemed completely comfortable on board. Yeah, he's out here every single day. He shows up at Joe's truck every morning ready to go to work. So he has fun out here. We, we play on the bow quite a bit. Does he actually ever s respond to a whale if he sees one? We're trying. So he, we're trying to reward him with a treat every time we see mm. a whale. And um, we're hoping that that will maybe inspire something in him to try to get more treats. He's very treat motivated. Um, <laughs> the thing that we think he actually could do is smell the whale because mm. whales have really stinky breath. That spout actually kind of smells like rotting Brussels sprouts. Oh, and lovely. So, yeah, I've actually found them by smelling them before. So if I can do it, I know that dog can do it. Interesting. So. That's really interesting. Well, that reminds me, you said that 
scientists are now using drones. Yeah. When a whale spouts and takes a breath, it's not seawater. It's basically snot. It's like a big sneeze. Uh -huh. And so scientists can fly drones over the spouts with a little Petri dish attached. And they collect samples of the whale snot in that dish. And then they can use that to collect the whale's DNA and test it for a bunch of different hormones as well. Hormones and you said stress hormones. Yes, when the whale's cortisol, um, testosterone, estrogen, so you can tell if they're pregnant, uh, even if they're fighting off a bacterial infection. Wow, wow. And the other interesting data point that you said is used is earwax. Yeah. It wouldn't be naturally something that I would think that would tell us a lot about whales, but tell us about yeah. whale earwax. So whale earwax is in this long plug and it's striped. So typically the whales are eating all summer long and then they're fasting all winter. So their earwax will actually show this. So they get really dark earwax when they're eating a lot and then lighter earwax when they're not eating anything. So they end up with these kind of stripes. So you can imagine it kind of like the rings on a tree trunk. Um, that's what a whale has inside their ear. <laughs> so do you have drones with big Q-tips or is this uh, after they're <laughs> deceased that you find yes, the earwax? Yes, the latter. So oh, okay. um, the whales don't have any external ear. You can't find it if you just are looking at them. We think that the larger whales, the larger baleen whales are hearing by absorbing vibrations through their jaw bones, but uh, we don't know for sure exactly how they hear. What we do know is they have a bone inside their head. <laughs> they have a bone inside their head. I can close the door actually. No, that's fine. That. No, okay. I like carrying them out there. Yeah, he really likes to play with the lines. He plays tug of war with me sometimes. <laughs> you have to teach him to be able to catch the lines. Yeah, so that would be ideal. Help doc. To, to get the earwax out, we have to find whales who have already died because their ear is entirely internal. They've got a bone on the inside of their ear, which is basically shaped like our outer ear. So it does the same thing. It's called bula, and it amplifies the vibrations before mm. they go to the inner ear. Wow. The caveat with that is that when whales wash up on the beach, it's usually not a healthy adult who's like dying of old age. Mm -hmm. It's usually ship strikes, um, calves who've been separated from their mothers, or individuals who are sick, or they've got plastic in their stomachs. It's some kind of extenuating circumstance. And so they're not necessarily representative of the overall population. What is the health of the overall population these days? It's a good question. So with the humpback population, it's kind of complicated. So in the North Pacific here, we have three subpopulations of humpback whales, two of which we see in this area. So the largest population of humpbacks is the Alaska-Hawaii population. So they spend their summer in Alaska and their winter in Hawaii. And those are not the same whales that we see here. Here we've got two groups. They both are here for the summer, but one goes down to Baja to mate and one goes down to Costa Rica to mate. The Costa Rican population is endangered still. The Baja population is threatened. The Alaska-Hawaii population is doing fine. Interesting. What's the difference between the groups? Do we know? No, they don't have too much of a difference in diet, but they can be culturally really different. So not so much the ones that are heading down the uh, West Coast here, but humpbacks in different populations will have different diets and different feeding techniques. 
even different languages. They will sing totally different songs. So they're, they are really unique and there's not a lot of overlap. Every once in a while, we'll see a whale from here pop up in Alaska or pop up in Hawaii, but we call those the backpacker whales. They're, they're, they're not normal. <laughs> so what's the hypothesis of why one culture would be doing well and another not? It might just be that in that population, there was less whaling. We did have a really active whaling station here in San Francisco, and we were taking out whales pretty much constantly all the way up until the 1970s. Wow. If you went whale watching 10 or 20 years ago and didn't see anything, try going again because a lot of the populations have been recovering. There are a lot more whales now than there were 50 years ago. Well, that's good to hear. And you said harbor porpoises are back. Yeah, the harbor porpoises are back. Do you want me to tell the the whole story of sure, the porpoises in the bay? Sure, go for All it. Go for it. I love them when I'm out sailing on the bay seeing the porpoises. It's just a wonderful thing for them to be yeah, sw- it is. swimming along by. And it's so. one of the best places in the world to see them, too, because they are so shy. Um, but around the Golden Gate, everything kind of gets pushed together and they end uh, up all right next to each other. So tell us the long story. Porpoises have lived here for a really long time. They've actually found porpoise bones in the shell mounds in, are in now Emeryville. So the indigenous tribes that lived around here, like the Ohlone, they all ate harbor porpoise. Hmm. But around the time of the gold rush, there started to be a lot of pollution in San Francisco Bay particularly from the hydraulic mining that was going on in the mountains. And all that sediment was washing out through the rivers and washing into the bay. That created uh, a lot of pollution. And then around the turn of the century, Golden Gate Bridge, the Bay Bridge, and Treasure Island all started construction. So it started to be really noisy as well as really polluted. Mm. But then the porpoises were still kind of around and in the area. But around World War II, All the porpoises left, and that's because we set up a submarine and torpedo net underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. The thing that could pass through the net would probably be smaller fish. Um, No way could a porpoise actually get through the net. Any porpoises that were in the bay were trapped there. Any porpoises that were outside were trapped there. And so they all left, and we didn't see them again until 2008. 60 years of functional extirpation from this area. We don't know exactly why it took them so long to return, but one theory is that it's because their lifespan's relatively short. So they are only about 10 to 15 years. And so it's possible within a few generations, they might have just lost the cultural knowledge of where San Francisco Bay was. Ah. As sailors probably know, it is actually kind of difficult to find from the ocean. It's a narrow opening, even though it's a huge bay. (laughs) And where was the first one spotted? When it was they seen? started spotting them from the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh. So the Golden Gate Bridge is an amazing aerial platform that we have for research. That's where most of our porpoise research happens because they are difficult to approach in boats. Mm. And so if you go to the Golden Gate Bridge at high tide and stand in the center span and look over the side and wait at least 10 minutes, <laughs> then you will probably see some porpoises. Wow, that's a great tip. Yeah. High tide, center span. Mm-hmm. And just, just wait, and you'll probably see harbor seals, sea lions, um, awesome aerial views of pelicans and other birds going through. I think that people don't realize how awesome of a wildlife spot the Golden Gate Bridge is uh, because it's 
noisy and there's cars and everything but if you go and you wait i was there the other day and i saw a sunfish come in underneath the golden gate bridge really i didn't even know we had them here yeah well we have lots way out in the gulf we see them all the time yeah but i've only seen one in the bay once before so that was pretty exciting <laughs> it is cool there was an incident that some people might remember in 2015. It certainly made the rounds on YouTube, which was a great white shark attack, I believe, on a seal. Yes, that's correct. And I was fascinated to hear what you said about that. A lot of people think that there are great white sharks in San Francisco Bay, but there's too much fresh water because it's an estuary. So we've got fresh water dumping in from the rivers almost constantly. And there's a couple reasons why great white sharks wouldn't like that. One of them is that fish typically like one level of salinity. They like it to be salty in whatever way they're used to. Mm -hmm. So the, since the bay is so much fresh water, the great white sharks are kind of uncomfortable when they come in here. The other thing is that the fresh water makes it really murky in here and they're visual predators. So if they can't find anything, can't see anything, then there's really no point for them in coming in here. So for that shark in 2015, we think that it happened because at that point we were at the peak of our drought and there was barely any fresh water entering San Francisco Bay, hmm. which made it really salty and made the visibility better. And so we think that that's how that shark was able to actually find some prey in here because it's it's quite rare. <laughs> yeah, it was, you said it was the first and last documented yep, shark attack. Yep, the only attack. predation event that we've seen in the bay. Well, that's reassuring, especially for those of us who swim in the <laughs> yes, bay. Yes, you shouldn't worry. There was that juvenile white shark who was caught off of Alcatraz a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. about eight to 10 feet. And that's pretty interesting. We're starting to see a lot of animals that are kind of their range has typically been Southern California, and they're starting to make their way up into the bay as waters get warmer and as food is available here. So we've mm. got all these animals, specifically the juvenile great whites and the bottlenose dolphins, are coming into this area to feed on the salmon. Well, thank you so much for educating us more about what's in the bay. Thank you for having me. <laughs> outside the Golden Gate. If people are interested in finding your photographs, they can go, as you said, to whalegirl.org. Mm -hmm. And if people are interested in the San Francisco whale tours, where do they go? SanFranciscoWhaleTours.com or you can visit us at Pier 39. There you go. Pretty easy. And I highly recommend a trip with Allison, or should I say Whale Girl. You'll <laughs> learn a lot. So thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. If you did, there's one main thing you can do to help me, and that's leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute and it'll help the show out a whole lot. So thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. You can reach me, Ben Shaw, with questions or guest suggestions at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Until next week, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing.